Well, good morning. And just a little disclaimer, last week, you, you guys that were seated here saw me step off the stage a couple of times, and I forgot there are people in the other room and people at home that have no clue what's going on. We had a little technical problem, as you folks know. So for those of you at home or in the other building, I'm sorry about the confusion there. I should have said something. But if you happen to see something weird happening, know that there's probably some technical issues we're trying to work through. So thank you for your patience. This is very, very new territory for us, and we're having to work through some video and sound things to make some adjustments. Let's pray before we begin. Our God in heaven, we thank you for who you are. You are a God of great love and mercy. The demonstration of the richness of your grace is seen in the sacrifice of your Son on our behalf. As believers, we are gathered here this morning, gathered even in our homes, under the ministry of your Spirit, the ministry and instruction of your Word, because of your compassion and love for your redeemed people. I pray, Father, by your Spirit, that you will fill our hearts with gratitude and praise. And even as we learn together, even as we hear your Word together, the instruction of your word, the conviction of your word. Father, let our response be one of praise and gratitude and thanksgiving that you care enough about our souls to see us grow in the likeness of Christ. And we do join our hearts together in prayer this morning to that end, that we would be more like Christ because we've met together, we've been under the ministry of your word and your spirit. And I pray that you would grant me the ability to speak clearly and well on these things also. But tune our hearts to praise this morning, even as we study your word. Bless those that are not able to be here, those that are seated at home and are worshiping with us or for some reason can't be part of this this morning. Minister to them as well. Father, we look for the day when we can again be safely joined together in worship of you. You are a great God. We love you. And I trust that our love will be evident in how we submit and humble our hearts before you this morning. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Please join me in John chapter 8 as we return to our study of John's gospel. John chapter 8. And I want to pick up in verse 30 and read down through verse 36. John chapter 8, beginning verse 30. As he, Jesus, spoke these things, many came to believe in him. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. I suppose that it is helpful that we are studying this particular passage, thank you, just prior to our Independence Day celebration, July 4th. And it's interesting that this is a time in our history when there is a lot of chaos in this nation as we enter into that time of celebrating our liberties and our freedoms. What we're going to be studying here this morning is really about the Christian's liberty. 
A believer's liberty, liberty in Christ. And this is important for us to know as believers. I know that as Christians we have a general understanding of the issues of spiritual bondage and freedom. But Jesus takes time to open up our minds to go a bit deeper than perhaps we've been before in this discussion of liberty. And as we look at our nation as well, one thing that should be clear to us is that this people, this American people, that claims to be a liberated and free people, truly does not understand liberty and freedom. At least not in the way our Savior teaches it here. Two weeks back, we entered this portion of John 8 with the understanding that those who came to Jesus claiming to believe in him in verse 30 is likely not a picture of true saving faith. Now, there may be some in that crowd that did eventually come to salvation by faith in Christ. But what is clear from our text and the flow of the verses here is that these, in verse 30, that came to believe in him turn to question him and then debate him in the end. And what I find, as I mentioned two weeks ago, what I find fascinating about this text is that the turning point from those who profess to believe to those who then became debaters of Christ, the turning point is the issue of freedom. And that's puzzling to me because when Jesus begins to articulate and describe freedom more fully, even offering, inviting to come and partake of this freedom, you think as much as people value liberty and freedom, this would be seen as a blessing. Instead, it becomes an offense. Jesus addressed those who believed in him, or at least those who professed to believe in him, in verses 31 and 32, under the context of discipleship. And that's where we were in our previous study. We examined discipleship as Jesus taught it. And remember he said, to those who believe, you think you believe, but those who abide in my word, those are the ones that are truly my disciples. And they will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And that introduces us to our second part of this study this morning, that freedom is to be experienced and what it looks like. The focus of attention this morning will be faith and freedom, the faith that believes in Christ, the truth about Christ, such that men and women can be free. And that subject of faith and freedom as taught by Christ here have a very different meaning than these Jews understood. And sadly, in the case of many, if not most of these people, the Lord's teaching on freedom caused such an offense with them that it not only exposed their lack of true faith, but if you venture on down farther in the text, it exposed the deceptive influence of Satan himself. And we'll touch on that more as we move further into John chapter 8. But in this part of John's gospel, he shows how genuine faith in Jesus Christ brings men and women into true freedom. But it also shows why freedom is not possible apart from faith in Christ. And this is revealed in the words of Jesus as he debated these people in the temple who had expressed a faulty belief in Christ. He teaches that freedom can only be experienced when it is first understood that men and women are held captive to their own sin. So our study begins this morning with the ignorance of man's understanding to spiritual bondage 
and spiritual freedom. Man's ignorance, the ignorance about freedom that even these Jews did not discern. Now Jesus had just declared those famous words that we hear often repeated, the truth shall set you free. And even the secular world and other philosophies will use that expression, not fully understanding what Jesus meant when he declared it. You will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. As I stated in my previous message, how odd that that's the turning point. How odd that that becomes the offense of these people here. They had just expressed some measure of belief in Jesus. And you can picture Jesus, the perfect preacher, the perfect debater with the Pharisees. And a crowd had gathered around and they're hearing marvelous explanations from Jesus who's identifying himself as the Son of God. And these people that are listening to this debate between Jesus, who is a master with the Old Testament Scriptures, debating the Pharisees, who are confused in their religion. And they're listening and saying, this Jesus seems to make sense. He knows his stuff. He knows the word. And they're beginning to believe in what he's saying. So Jesus turns to these ones, these presumed believers, and he confronts them with the truth of his word and what a true disciple looks like. And then he mentions freedom. If you'll know the truth about me, you will be free. And they reel back at that point and say, now wait a minute, Jesus. We're a free people. What is meant by that? In verse 33, they say, we're Abraham's descendants and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? The very fact that the Jews based their presumed freedom on their physical lineage to Abraham exposed their ignorance on what true freedom really is. Now, as many have pointed out, the Jews have a long history of enslavement, even going back to the time of Moses. Israel was in Egyptian slavery. They were under bondage with Egypt, and that's what introduced Israel to their great Redeemer and Savior, Moses himself, the revered one, the lawgiver. And out of that came the law, which was their national identity. We are a people that have the law of God. They trace back to Abraham, who is their father, and the rite of circumcision, which again identified them as the people of God. And it's not only their Egyptian bondage that was in their history. It was bondage to the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Syrians. This is a people that have known historically bondage. And I've often heard that these Jews were quite forgetful. This is the explanation sometimes we hear of verse 30. that They must be quite forgetful in answering Jesus. Because they've known bondage. They've known slavery. How is it they're now saying, we've never been enslaved? I have to agree at this point with others who do not, do not agree with that assessment. But they recognize that what the Jews are saying here is that they were religiously free, not nationally free. They knew full well their history. They had been in bondage to other nations. I believe their reference here in verse 33 is to their religious freedom. What they have, they have in Father Abraham. They are the people of God. They've always been the people of God. 
for them to presume that they've never been in bondage to other nations would be ridiculous because there they stand talking to Jesus under the bondage of Rome. I don't think they were confused on this point. I don't think they forgot those national bondages. I believe that the context of their comments to Jesus is that what we have is an identity that we alone belong to God. We go all the way back to Abraham. And in Genesis 17, didn't God declare to Abraham an everlasting covenant where these will be my people? This is why the circumcision of Abraham, the law of Moses, were so critically important to the Jews. Those were the outward signs that marked them as a true spiritually free people of God. They're the only ones that had Yahweh as their own. And of course, we could argue that historically Israel had forsaken the worship of God, and that's why God turned them over to national bondage and slavery. But nonetheless, these Jews still held themselves to be the chosen people of God who had never come under the bondage of another pagan god, only Yahweh. They would argue that God held them with an everlasting embrace traced all the way back to the promise God made to Abraham. Yet their debate here in verse 33 only exposed their ignorance on true spiritual freedom. And I liken this to a child that might be born blind. How would you describe to such a child that was never experienced sight? How would you describe the color red? Or the difference between light and dark? Israel was like that. Spiritually blind and unable to see their own slavery to sin. In one sense... They should have been able to understand since the law was given for that reason. As Tim read to us this morning from Romans 7, they believed themselves to be devoted keepers of the law and were therefore preserved as God's own free people. But Paul wrote to the church in Rome, especially looking back in chapter 5 and verse 20 and 21, that the law came and was given to expose sin to make sin visibly increase before the people of God. God gave them the law to show them that they were sinners. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who I often read, made this comment in his commentary on Romans 5, that the law not only increased the knowledge of sin and convicted of sin, but it incites men to sin. And if you're a parent, you know this about children. The moment you say, thou shalt not touch that, what is it they want to do? What did God's people want to do when God said, thou shalt not? They wanted to do what God had told them not to do. They refused to do what God said you should do. So in a sense, law exposed sin in mankind. It even incited men to sin. And this exposure of sin was meant to cause men to see themselves more clearly as sinners, which of necessity must bring men and women to a place where they cry out for the mercy and grace of God, knowing we can't fulfill the law. We can't live by the law. We can't keep it. The Jews thought the law to be their salvation. But in Romans chapter 3, verse 20, the word of God says, By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. 
For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. That's why God gave the law. To make men know their sin. So if anything, the law should have caused these Jews to realize they're not free men. They're in bondage to sin. The law exposed that sin. It made them know they were sinners. And yet they're blind to that spiritual reality. What verse 33 shows us that not only were these people ignorant of their own spiritual condition, but they were insulted by the suggestion that they weren't free. And so the response was a protest against the freedom that Jesus offered through the knowledge of the truth about him, the truth that would set them free. Now, without a doubt, we can learn a very valuable lesson from that kind of spiritual blindness because even as believers, we can take offense when others might suggest we have a habit of sinning in a certain way. Whether that habit is a critical spirit or gossiping or some moral failure, we don't mind so much, perhaps, when a particular sin is identified. Do you realize you said that or did that one thing? Oh yes, we can excuse that. It was only one time. But try talking to somebody that is characteristic of a sin or who has a pattern or a reputation of a particular sin and that's where the discussion becomes objectionable, doesn't it? Because none of us wants to be seen as characterized as a slave to sin such that it refashions my very personality. It's what I become known for. That's offensive. And that's exactly how these Jews respond to Jesus. They pull back. How dare you say that we are slaves? How dare you suggest we're not free? We have the law. We're the keepers of the law. And that's our salvation. That's what makes us a free people belonging to God. I can understand the Jews' protest. Because in my sinfulness, I do the same thing when somebody shakes their finger at me and says, do you realize you have a habit here? Because then I realize I'm a slave to that habit of sin. This objection to the teaching of Christ was the result of their ignorance of the freedom that he brings and the freedom that all men so desperately need. And this brings us, verse 34, to Jesus' response. And we, to some degree, have to set up a camp here and take note of what Jesus says in this response because he says, truly, truly. And we've talked about that before. That double emphasis is Jesus taking hold, capturing their thoughts, and saying to them, here is a truth that you must know. In the Greek, amen, amen, or what we would say, amen, amen. Truly, truly, this is, a, this is an emphasis that we need to take hold of. It's again an, a negative one. But it's declaring the, what I call the inaccessibility of freedom. That freedom of this nature is out of reach. Men and women are incapable of taking hold of the freedom that Christ is defining here. Everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. Imagine how offensive that would have been to these Jews. Because this puts all of humanity on the same playing field. For these Jews thought themselves to be spiritually free in their religious devotion. Jesus is now saying, Jew and Gentile alike, it doesn't matter. If you sin, 
You're a slave to that sin. You don't have the spiritual freedom that I alone can give. And in this sense, freedom is inaccessible to man because of sin since all are sinners. And therefore, all are in bondage to sin. All are a slave to their own sinful nature. And this bondage holds captive our will. It holds captive our affections, our thoughts, our words, and even our practices. Now, those of you that are seated here have a small bulletin note sheet. So there is not room for me to put all the quotes on that I would like to share this morning. And we can't put it up on the screen because right now our computer is overtaxed doing what we're doing. So those of you at home have a fuller note sheet. And those of you here today, if you would like the quotes that I'm going to be sharing, just go home and and download the online note sheet and you'll get those. But I want to share a couple that I believe are important to our discussion this morning. Arthur Pink said, being a sinner by nature, being a sinner by nature, man is a sinner by practice and cannot be anything else. We are sinners by nature. And therefore, a sinner by practice, we cannot be anything else. In ourselves, we have no ability to gain freedom from this condition. And this is the strong declaration that Jesus is making to these Jews. You think you have your security in the keeping of the law. Truly, truly, I say to you, because you sin, you're a slave. You're in bondage. William Hendrickson, another scholar I love to read under, study under, he put it this way. This is a longer expression, so you'll have to kind of bear with me and listen along carefully. William Hendrickson writes, Such a man is here called a slave of sin. He is a slave, for he has become overcome and taken captive by his master, sin, and is unable to deliver himself from this bondage. He is as truly, nay more truly, chained as is the prisoner with the iron band around his leg, the band that is fastened to a chain which is cemented into the wall of the dungeon. He cannot break the chain. On the contrary, every sin he commits draws that chain tighter until at last it crushes him completely. Do you see the word picture that he's giving us there? Prior to Christ, we were that prisoner in the dungeon. The band was fastened to our leg, the chain cemented to the wall, and because of our sin, that chain is drawn tighter and tighter until at last we are crushed by sin. That's the description Jesus gives when he says, truly, truly, listen careful to, to me here. You are a slave. You're not free. And this is the reason that men cannot be truly free in any sense, whether political, emotional, philosophical. We can't be morally free, certainly not spiritually free, so long as we are a slave to sin. And if you're here or listening to my voice, perhaps as an unbeliever, especially an American unbeliever, you may embrace your liberties and freedoms, but in reality you don't know true political national freedom so long as you are a slave to sin. Any freedom or liberty that man can experience will still be corrupted and under the bondage of man's slavery to sin. 
Do you wonder why the protesters today in our nation are crying out for racial freedom, but the robbing citizens of their freedom as they rape and they pillage and they destroy and they kill? Why is their concept of freedom and liberty so skewed? It's because they're a slave to sin. We can't even know national American liberty well until this issue of our slavery to sin is rectified. These Jews should have understood that. This is why Jesus is speaking to them in verse 34. Truly, truly, you need to listen to what I have to say here. The Jews' devotion to keep the law of Moses could never break them free of their slavery to sin. Neither could the sacrifice of animals, the shedding of blood in goats and bulls, It couldn't take away that slavery. It couldn't take away that sin. The author of Hebrews put it well in chapter 10 and verse 4. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So long as sin is the master, as Hendrickson put it, men and women are slaves to it. And we have to think on these terms if we're going to fully appreciate what Jesus was saying to these Jews. God had given the Jews the law of Moses to his people. He had given these laws. He called them his chosen nation. And in keeping the law, the Jews thought themselves to be God's free and special people, unique on the face of the earth. And they were in regard to God's calling. But they claimed the lineage to Abraham, who was given the covenant promise of God. They claimed that, that promise to name themselves as a free people. And yet, Jesus said, so long as men are sinners, they are slaves to sin. They're in need of the freedom that only comes, only comes from knowing the truth of Jesus Christ. And we can understand how these words would have been offensive to the Jews who thought themselves to be very free in their religion because of their own spiritual devotion. Again, Arthur Pink, and this isn't even on the note sheet at home, he said the condition of the natural man is far, far worse than he imagines and far worse than the average preacher and Sunday school teacher supposes. Now, I can suppose myself to be a pretty naughty individual at times, but the true wretchedness of my sin is that once I was a slave to it, I'm not anymore. But once I was a slave to it. And we begin to get a hint of how awful that is when we envision the Savior on the cross and he cries out to the Father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God had turned his face away from his son because now his son was putrid, defiled with our sin. That's what it looks like this slavery to sin, that even the father would turn away from his son. The one who knew no sin became sin on our behalf, Paul wrote. And this sin is so pervasive in our nature that true freedom of any kind is impossible so long as we are slaves to that wicked master. There is a sinful nature in all men. This may be hard to understand at first, but I'm going to quote from Richard Phillips in his commentary on John who wrote these words. We are not sinners because we sin. We are not sinners because we sin, but we sin because we are sinners. 
What he means is that we did not at some point become a sinner when we first sinned. Our trouble started long before that, didn't it? We came out of the womb with a sin nature. That's why we sin. We didn't become a sinner the first time we sinned, in other words. We were sinners by birth. It was in our nature. All this to say that true freedom is inaccessible to all men because all men are in bondage to sin. They're chained to it. And they cannot in and of themselves escape it. As Jesus declares here, truly, truly, all men must know this. Why would Jesus make this dreadful and terribly negative statement to such an essential truth as this? Why is this essential to know? It's because the person who comes to know this has been led by the Spirit of God to that first step towards true freedom. This is where it begins. This is where we begin to be introduced to the freedom that he offers. All men are in bondage to sin. Freedom from sin is inaccessible, but through Christ alone. And this brings us then to our third and critical point in understanding freedom. Verse 35 and verse 36. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free you will be free indeed. We can't make ourselves free. Freedom is inaccessible to us, except through the Son. And I love the marvelous imagery that Jesus uses here with the house. Because Israel would have understood this. The Jew should have known this. You have to appreciate the house used here. And I want to quote from Jeremiah 13, 11. Because God spoke to Israel with these same words, the same imagery, saying to Israel, I made the whole household of Israel and the whole household of Judah cling to me, declares the Lord, that they might be for me a people for renown, for praise, and for glory. But they did not listen. What God is saying is that I gathered this people, this chosen people, to myself. I gave a promise to Abraham I gave them the law through Moses. I gave them the prophets. This is the people that was closest to the presence of God. And here's the great wonder in the words of Jesus to these Jewish people. They were so close to God's freedom. So close to the truth of it. They are the slaves in the household of God that Jesus names here. They were chosen by God to be named his people. They were given the promise of an everlasting covenant and blessing through that nation by their father Abraham. But Jesus states here that their place in God's house is not fixed. They are the slaves who do not remain in his house forever. But the very fact that they had a place in God's house, that's an honored position that God gave to them. They were so close to God, so close to the truth. They had experienced his blessings. They had seen his promises, his miracles. Firsthand, they had witnessed this. They had his law. They held in their hands the sacred prophecies of the salvation that would come through Messiah. How close they were to God's eternal kingdom because they served in God's house. They were near to God's presence experiencing his saving power and graciousness, yet Jesus says that they did not afford them. 
God did not afford them a permanent position in God's house forever. What their place in God's house did do is that it introduced them to God's son, the one that did have a permanent place in the house. And it is through the slave, it is through Israel, that his son came to be known to the world. It is through Israel that the gospel came. But Israel did not listen. Israel is the slave in Christ's analogy in that they were used by God to present his law, a law that would expose sin to mankind. It is through Israel that the Savior would come. It is through Israel that the message of salvation would first come to be preached. But this does not mean that all of Israel has eternal place in the kingdom of God. They don't have a permanent place. So Jesus goes on to proclaim that the Son alone must set men free. He alone belongs in that house forever. And He grants to some, He grants to those that believe a permanent place in His house. Jesus alone is shown to be the one who has that permanent position and who can grant to others a permanent position. And this is a position of power and mercy because he alone is the one that sets men free. And it is this freedom indeed, he said. Notice the wording there. If I set you free, if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. You will know true freedom. And this freedom, what is it? What is it he means here? Well, it is freedom for guilt of sin, to be sure. Based on his sacrifice, and I think of Colossians chapter 2, where the Apostle Paul wrote that every decree, every law that condemned us, every charge against us was nailed to the cross, and Jesus paid the price in full. That means for me as a believer, every single sin committed is covered. That takes guilt away. I can stand before God guiltless because my sins are fully atoned for, every single one of them. This freedom is a freedom from the power of sin. It's freedom to live in victory over sin. Sin is no longer the master that rules over us because we're now under grace, the unmerited favor of God. This is what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 6 and verse 14. Sin is no longer our master as believers because we're not under law, are we? We're under grace. It's freedom from the judgment of sin. There's no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8 and verse 1. It is freedom to follow Jesus Christ in a life of holiness and peace. It's a freedom to not walk in sin. It's a freedom to walk in righteousness. This is where Jesus started the conversation with these so-called believers. Those who abide in my word, these are my true disciples. These are the ones who will follow me. This is freedom. The freedom to follow Christ and not walk in sin anymore. But we've been given way to the righteousness of God. Paul wrote of this in Ephesians chapter 4 when he said, We no longer walk as the Gentiles who do not know the glory of the gospel, darkened by their understanding. We don't walk that way anymore. Why? Because we have not learned Christ in this way. And then he goes on to write in Ephesians chapter 4, this is how the believer does walk. 
according to the Spirit of God. That's freedom. The freedom Jesus offers is a freedom that not only transforms our will and our affections, but it's a freedom to speak words and practice life differently according to the pleasure and purposes of the Lord. And so Jesus said, you will be free indeed meaning that his freedom will transcend all other freedoms. It stands by itself. Men who are enslaved to sin can never truly know the kind of liberty and freedom that the Son of God provides. Those that live in the most impoverished, dictatorial, political nation, if they have Christ, they know freedom that even Americans don't understand who have not Christ. And we must observe here in verse 35 and 36 that it is the Son of God that makes them free. We don't make ourselves free. We don't have that ability. Freedom is inaccessible to us because we're in bondage to sin. We need somebody to come and rescue us, to break the chains. And that's what Jesus is saying to these Jews. You think you have the law. You think it's made you free. It hasn't. It's only exposed your slavery to sin. But if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. It must be the Son that makes us free. Our deeds cannot earn it. Our works will not achieve that freedom. The Son must make us free. And from John's Gospel to this point, we've already understood. It's the Spirit of Jesus, John chapter 3, that comes to make us be born again. John chapter 6, it's the Father that must draw us to the Son and grant us the gift of faith, Ephesians 2. It's the Son who must die to make payment for our sins and it is God the Father, God the Son that holds on to those who are His. This is what John is writing in this gospel narrative. This is what true faith does. True freedom is a work of God's grace. Now, just bringing our thoughts to a close, and I'm going to do my uh, conclusion a little bit differently. There's three very basic points, but I want to just bring some of this to a close so that we, as believers, truly appreciate the freedom that we have in Christ. And if you're not a believer and you're listening to these words, we appeal to you, look at this freedom that Christ offers. There is no other Savior. And we call you to faith in Him that you might know this kind of freedom. Jesus began this discussion with a group of believers, but describing to them what it means to be a true disciple. And this discussion would expose the true nature of an unbelieving heart, no matter the initial profession of faith that we may see in verse 30. A true follower of Christ is one who abides in his word. And it's through his word that the truth of Christ is known, and it is his truth that sets us free. And as I stated in the early moments of our study, our nation is in turmoil by some who suppose themselves to be in pursuit of freedom and equality and liberty for all. Yet I know that if we are to preach our world to our world around us, that they are in slavery to sin, they also are going to reel back because they think they understand liberty. But the unbeliever has no concept. They are blind to the spiritual bondage that they are in. 
In fact, most unbelievers in our present culture would boast that they're the free ones, free to make their own choices, choose their own pleasures, make their own decisions about moral institutions of some sort. They would further argue that the Christian is the one in bondage in these highly restrictive laws of absolutes and all we can do is follow the dictates of our religion or an antiquated book. We're the ones in bondage, they would say. They're free. They see themselves as free from constraints of religion. But they live under the deception that they are free to make their own choices, good or bad. You take a young person today that may leave the Christian home, renouncing their faith in Christ. They step into the world and they will declare, now I am free to choose my own way, right? Many of you have parents have witnessed this. And what do they almost always choose? Moral slavery. They go out and pursue bondage of moral sins that captures them and holds on to them. Sexual perversions or addictions to drugs and alcohol. That's what they call freedom. All who sin are in bondage to do no other but sin. And in this condition of slavery, the the world can only experience a limited national liberty that is corrupted by sinful choices and sinful pleasures. They can only know a freedom to pursue happiness that is marked by sinful desires and selfish pursuits. The freedom to choose for oneself can only be limited to the corrupt nature that will make those choices. In other words, men are never truly free. Arthur Pink again, he wrote these words, the love of self, the love of the world, the love of money, the love of pleasure, these are the tyrants which rule over those who are outside of Christ. Those of us that are free in Christ know this. And this is the hard message that we've been commissioned by Christ to preach. And it is difficult because we know like these Jews, people are going to pull back and balk. How dare you say we're not free? True freedom, so long as we live in our corrupted flesh and our broken world, will find us bound to the righteousness of another. And that other is Jesus Christ. We dare not trust our own righteousness It is faulty at best. We must be chained to the righteousness of Christ. Paul again, Romans chapter 6, verse 22, But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification, and the outcome? Eternal life. The benefit that Paul speaks of here are the things that result in our sanctification. And there's the beauty and the joy of our freedom, is it not? We now are free to grow in the likeness of God's Son. No longer enslaved to sin, we are in bondage to the righteousness of God. How does the Christian then live in this freedom? If we're talking about a true freedom that takes us outside of ourselves and our own sinful inclinations, it has to be a freedom that depends on another who is infinitely more righteous than we are. So therefore, we must submit to the perfections and graces of God, because we are now as Christians free to do so. How? Well, we know how. We learn this by searching the Word of God 
to guide us in the righteousness of Christ. We're to become students of his word. We come to him in prayer where we humbly submit to God's will, not our own, but we appeal, we plead to God through Christ for his will. And we yield to his spirit who now indwells us, yielding to him to direct our thoughts, our will, our affections. And this growth in Christ-likeness, what we call our progressive sanctification, is where you and I are learning to live as free people. We know by nature bondage to sin. That's what we know by nature. But in Christ, we're learning about freedom and what it means to live free as men and women in Christ. And we're going to need a lot of help in learning that freedom, aren't we? So we have the counsel of other believers. We have the ministries of the church. We have the faithful exercising of spiritual gifts. These are graces that God has given to us that we learn to live as a free people. But with all of these, we have to learn the truth of his word. We've got to humbly submit to his help, being a people of prayer. And we must respond obediently to the calling and the ministry of his spirit within Again, I would appeal to any that are wondering about their own condition with sin and their relationship with Jesus Christ. If you don't know him as your Savior, can we appeal to you? Come to Christ by faith. Cry out to him that you might be set free from your sin and enslaved to his righteousness and you will know freedom indeed, as we do in Christ. And do we not praise God for that? those of us that have that freedom. Father in heaven, we do give you much praise and honor and glory for introducing us to a freedom and a liberty that is like no other. Had not you come to us and drawn us to yourself, we would have never known our bondage to sin. We would have never known the freedom that you offer in Christ. The believers here this morning joined together in heart and spirit to worship you and to praise you and to say thank you to Christ for bringing us there. And Father, we pray for those that are listening now that may yet be without Christ and not fully understand the freedom we speak of. Would you open their hearts and minds to understand, draw them to yourself. May the Spirit breathe new life into them May you grant them faith that they might know this freedom be released from the bondage of sin. And Father, as we go out into the world and preach this sometimes offensive message, we pray that you would give us open doors for the gospel. Lead us to those people that you would draw to your Son and help us to faithfully proclaim your Son's name. We pray this in Christ. Amen. Why don't you stand with me now as we close. And um, we've been taught by the word and we've heard the gospel preached. And part of my bringing up Colossians 3.16 was the fact that we are now singing these truths. And there's something mysterious that happens in that. We are, he has died for me. His praise and his glory will not fail throughout eternity. Uh, There is a fountain. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there may I, though vile as he, Wash all my sins away. These are the truths that we are encouraging one another with.